I'd like to invite the rest of you to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. And what I want to do today is I'm picking up on the message last week and I want to kind of dial in and look at these um, themes individually that we talked about last week. Remember I said that in the first eight chapters of Luke, <clears throat> as he uh, got his disciples ready for that amazing uh, experience and experiment of going out and proclaiming the kingdom of God and healing those that were sick and delivering those that were demonized, they had observed Jesus in a number of situations, and they had listened to him teach on a number of occasions, and certain things kept coming up again and again. And among those, uh, right at the top of the list, was total commitment to God and dependence on the Holy Spirit. I mentioned to you that Luke is uh, uh, the gospel of the Holy Spirit and the book of Acts. Uh, he is focused. And it's interesting that Luke is uh, a Gentile, as far as we know. Some say that he was a kind of a, uh, a Jew that had a Gentile culture, but as far as we know, he was a Gentile with um, a background in medicine. He was a doctor, and yet he is the one whose heart is captured by the idea of being filled and controlled by the Holy Spirit. And so uh, he brings out those events in the ministry of Jesus that have to do with commitment and surrender and under the leadership and authority of the Holy Spirit. You know, I was thinking about those disciples. Uh, I, I left you last week with the question, um, am I ready? Am I ready? to go out and announce the kingdom of God, to encounter those who are sick and minister healing, to encounter those who are demonized and minister deliverance. Am I ready for that? And admittedly, um, when you think about that, there was something the disciples had that, that we have not had that uh, opportunity or experience in quite the same way. They spent the first year of their lives uh, as disciples with Jesus in the flesh, listening to him with their ears, uh, watching him with their eyes, experiencing them uh, in all kinds of situations and circumstances and seeing how he responded, watching his body language, listening to the tone of his voice, observing um, just his own nature and personality operating within these different realms. And we have not had that quite that same experience. So um, I, I have to give a little credit there that they had more of a hands-on discipling than we have had the opportunity to have. On the other hand, there are some things that we have that they didn't have. We're talking about a year, year and a half into the public ministry of Jesus. They've been following him for about that period of time. There has been no cross. There has been no resurrection. There has been no Pentecost. They have not uh, had the opportunity yet to live on this side of those eternally transformational events. They have not had the benefit to really understand and comprehend what the true gospel message is. 
I mean, when you think about it, these were men who, who had a hope and a dream that God would somehow visit Israel again and bring deliverance to Israel and, and, and transform them as a people um, under Roman oppression, give them release and victory. And they were enamored by his teaching. He taught them as one having authority. It was fresh from God. It was that fresh voice from God. And they had all of those kind of feelings wrapped up, but they did not have a, a good understanding of what it all meant. They really didn't know at this point that Jesus was going to a cross, not to a throne. They had no idea that um, he was going to be raised from the dead three days later. They had no idea that they were going to be empowered and filled by the Holy Spirit <clears throat> 50 days after that. These were things that were still unknown to them. We, on the other hand, have the benefit of looking back on these historical events and recognizing that they have transpired. And as the gospel writers and the writers of the New Testament letters and the Apostle Paul and James and John and Peter and Jude and others began to interpret for us by divine inspiration what those spiritual events really mean, we have the privilege of understanding what God has done for us in Christ. We can view it with enlightened eyes. We have the opportunity to make choices and commitments based on understanding that the disciples were just kind of like, may I use the phrase romantic idealism? They were just kind of captured by what was thrilling for them. Not that we don't need to be captured by what's thrilling for us, but, but we have much greater insight into what it all meant than they did. And so, in Romans chapter 6, if we, if we take these themes that have recurred in the, in the Gospel of Luke, and we ask the question, what is the one place in the New Testament that is the classical passage, the focal passage, talking to us about total surrender? What passage of Scripture could we choose that would explain to us the meaning and the nature of being sold out to God? That passage, I believe, would be Romans chapter 6. As Paul developed his gospel uh, explanation for the church at Rome, and he wrote it down in logical, progressive fashion, he brings us beyond the moment of conversion and, and, and uh, justification and cleansing and uh, all of that and our identification to Christ. And he brings us to chapter 6 where he explains the decision to be committed to God. What does it mean and how does it look and what does it entail? And in order to do that, uh, if you'd follow with me as I read a few verses here from Romans 6, beginning in verse 12. Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. 
But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you're not under law but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Paul tells us in this section that there are, he, he names three things that occur the moment that we come to Jesus Christ in repentance and salvation and in the new birth. A number of years ago I read a booklet and I don't remember them all today, but I do remember the list. There was about 30 things on the list that occur simultaneously at the moment of conversion. About 30 different things that happen in heaven, in our bodies, in our lives, just as a result of placing our faith in Jesus Christ. These are, these are automatic that God just does in that moment. I'm not going to go into all of them, but one of your questions on the back of the study guide is see if you can come up with as many as possible that you know of that happens. I'll give you some ideas. Maybe sanctification positionally, maybe justification. Uh, there are many, many more. But Paul names three things here that have to do with this idea of total surrender that, that occur when we're born again. He says, first of all, we are made alive unto God. In verse 13, he says, we have come to life in Christ, alive from the dead. We have been reborn. We're no longer dead to God, dead in trespasses and sins, but we've come to life. We have vibrancy. We have aliveness. We have relationship with God. We commune with Him. We're suddenly no longer dull and witless and, and unaffected by eternal things, but we're alive in God. We see things differently. The whole world looks different. Our relationship with God is different because we are alive to Him. This happens in that moment of conversion. It's the new birth. Paul also tells us that we are freed from the law and brought under grace. Boy, this is an important truth and many believers do not get this. And even though I've said it many, many times, we have a tendency to fall back into habitual thoughts rather than transformed thinking. We have been freed in Christ from the law. 
that external body of rules and regulations and requirements that tell us how to live. We have been freed from that as a motivating source of godly living. It does not apply to us. Instead, we have been brought under grace. And what that means is, is that we have come to a place where the Holy Spirit, now residing in us because of the new birth, has brought the heart of God inside of us. The law is nothing more than an outward, articulated expression of God's character. And if you don't have God's character in you, you need it out of you, (laughs) out there to tell you what it's like. But if you have Him in you, then He can live His life in you in automatic righteousness. And grace means we're in a place where we're not having to obey these rules out of fear, but we are able to have a relationship with God based in love that responds with affection to the promptings of His Spirit. We find that righteousness just happens as a result of that. And we have been freed from the law of sin. You've heard me say dozens of times that sin is like the law of gravity. fall off a ladder, you're going down. You will not land on the ceiling. And sin will pull you down under its control every time unless there's something that releases you from that pull. And that's exactly what Paul means when he says we have been freed from sin. He's not talking about freed from the ability to sin. You still have the ability to sin. He's not talking about being freed from the presence of sin. You you still live amongst the sinful generation and sinful people, and it's all around you. But he's talking about being freed from the power of sin to keep you under its thumb so that you cannot do the right thing. You've been freed from that. Now, friends, we don't have to pray for these things. We don't have to beg God. Please deliver me from the law. Please, please, please deliver me from the power of sin. Please, God, help me be under grace. You don't have to pray those prayers. You're there. It's already true of you. It's not something you have to grow into. It's something you have by virtue of your new birth in Jesus Christ. It is yours already. It's true. It's one of the biggest misunderstandings that we have, I think, in our spiritual walk is what is already true of us, and the devil really does not want us to understand that. He wants to keep our thinking in the old habitual ways so that we will kind of live under the idea that we're still trapped. 
if he can get us to live that way, we, we can, we'll live defeated lives. I mean, he's, he's kind of got us. And he would love to snatch this truth away. So, so drill it in there, will you? You are free in Jesus Christ. And we're the only people that can actually make choices. Unbelievers can't make choices. They may think they can, but they're in bondage. They're not only in bondage, they're blind. So not only are they not free not to sin, they can't see what the difference is. We have our eyes open and we're free in Jesus Christ. Now, because of that, Paul says there is a crucial decision that we have to make. And and I want you to see that by looking at verse 12. I want you to see the wording there and understand the implication of it because it's really important. Therefore, because of everything I've just said to you, and it's demonstrated in the first 11 verses of chapter 6, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. Do not let sin reign. What does that tell me? It tells me that if I do nothing, sin will reign. I'm being told to stop something that has been going on. Do not let sin reign. If I do nothing, it's going to rule. I'm going to follow my habits. The enemy's going to keep me blinded to the truth. And I'm going to feel like I don't have any choice except to sin. You've heard me say before, I grew up that way. I grew up in a church that said you get saved and you do the best you can till you get to heaven, but you don't expect too much. You're... As long as I'm in the body, I'm going to sin. Stop. Think about it. Did Jesus have a body? Did Jesus sin? Is your body the problem? It is not. Your body is not your problem. Jesus had a body just like yours. He did not sin. So your body has nothing to do with you sinning or not sinning. You're not destined to sin because you're in the body. You can be free from sin in the body. The problem is your will. The problem is gratifying the desires of your body outside the will of God. The problem is following your appetites. The the problem is uh, going after the things that you desire instead of after the things that God desires. That's the problem. The problem is inside us who live in this body. And I was told that the only thing you could do was just kind of try to do your best, and then when you got to heaven, it would be all over. You know, and I cannot tell you how many times I heard, as long as I'm in this body, I'm going to sin. That's not the problem. So we have to think differently. You've been freed from the power of sin. The habit is to give in to sin. That's the habit. And now we have been released from that bondage. We don't have to give in. And so Paul says, don't let 
sin reign. Don't allow it to go on influencing your behavior. Stop this nonsense. (laughs) Put an end to it. Okay, how do I do that? Well, he says, stop letting sin reign in your body. Stop presenting the members of your body as sin to instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. Present yourselves to God. This is the choice that you have to make. You have to make a decision that you will come to that place where you will give yourself to God. You say, I thought I did that when I got saved. You trusted him for salvation. Now you know a little more of what that means. Now you know a little more of what's involved. And so the admonition is, come to God and make a conscious, intelligent, purposeful commitment to give yourself to Him without reservation. What does this present mean? It's the same kind of word that is used when a, a, a Jew would bring a lamb to the temple to be sacrificed and would present the lamb. There wasn't a single Jew in Israel when they chose or otherwise purchased that one-year-old firstborn yearling from the flock that was without blemish and brought it to the priest at the temple, there wasn't a single Jew that expected to carry that lamb away walking on its own four legs. Every one of them expected that lamb to be sacrificed, its blood to be poured out on the altar, and its body devoted over to the Lord, and then there were some parts they could take home uh, if it were Passover to eat, but they did not expect that lamb to be led back out of the temple. It was going to die there. They knew that. It was a sacrifice. And friends, when Paul is telling us here to present ourselves to God, he is using this same terminology. Come to God and present yourself on the altar with the intent of dying there. To all of your ambitions, to all of your interests, all of your desires, good or bad, to all of your will, to all of your wants, everything, to all of yourself. Put that on the altar. Give it to God. Take your hands off. Let Him consume you. And let him take up the parts, your mind and your mouth and your ears and your hands and your feet. Let him take over and control you, influence you, 
empower you. Let him do as he pleases. Give him yourself and all of your members to be filled and controlled by his spirit. And friends, we really only have that one choice. Not to choose that kind of surrender is to choose to allow sin to reign. There there are only two ways you can go. You can either live under the dominion of sin, or you can live under the control of the Holy Spirit. You cannot have both. And there is no third option. From, From the moment of creation, when God created Adam... He created human beings to be dependent upon and indwelt by his spirit, by God's spirit. He breathed into his nostrils his own spirit, the rock of life, the breath of life, and Adam became a living soul. And we were determined from that moment to be dependent people upon the spirit of God. And when Adam sinned and he rebelled and went his own way, he came under the control of the devil. Those are the only two choices we have. You cannot choose to be independent. You cannot operate under your own power. You cannot exercise autonomy. It's not possible. You will either be yielded to Satan, or you will be yielded to God. Those are your choices. And if you're not yielded to God, by default, you're yielded to the devil. And I'm talking about believers. If he can't keep you from being saved, he will keep you miserable. And he will ensure defeat. And he will leave your life meaningless, if at all possible. If he cannot keep you out of heaven because of the forgiveness and cleansing that is yours in Jesus Christ, he will seek to to keep your life under his thumb so that you're basically an unhappy person and you're not comfortable in either realm. Because you're a child of God, you can't live in the world guilt-free. And because you're not a child of the world, but you're living part of your life there, you can't be happy in the kingdom either. You're, you're just in no man's land. But you're not free. And so Paul says, you need to make a choice. And after the cross, and after the resurrection, and after Pentecost we have a better understanding of what that means. And that means that I come to God and I yield to Him, I surrender to Him every part of my being without reservation. I allow Him to have control. What that looks like is, I come under grace, I come under His power, I come under the power of the Holy Spirit. Don't you have inside of you when you're being tempted don't you have something that says don't do that don't you hear that 
Don't say that. Don't go there. Don't you hear that? That proves you're a child of God, partly. It's part of the proof. And when you hear that, you can say, okay, yes, Lord. And don't you have something that sometimes says, why don't you say this? Why don't you do that? Why don't you go here? Why don't you take them this? Why don't you write this note? Why don't you, don't you have that happen to you? Do you obey when you hear that? What the, the scripture is telling us is when we are living under the control of the Holy Spirit, he will tell us what's right and wrong and, and give us this information and offer to take over. There is no temptation taking you but such as is common to man. And every one of them, God will make a way of escape that you can endure it. So he gives you that chance and he will prompt you to do the things that you ought to do. That's why you don't need the law out there. You have it in here. You have God's character in here. But the motivator is different. The motivator is love. It comes from a heart of love. You know, think back to when you were dating. Think back to when your love was fresh. Isn't that what John writes from Jesus in Revelation? Remember your first love. Go back and do the deeds you did at first. Do you ever remember saying, Oh, i got to go on a date this week. Doggone it. Do you ever say about your quiet time? Oh, I gotta go buy her a gift. How disgusting. Oh, we gotta have a conversation. I'm gonna be on the phone probably an hour. How frustrating. Is that what it was like? Now, he couldn't hold you back with a team of horses. All the time you could spare, every moment you could give, being together was delightful. Why? Because you were in love. Some of you are laughing a little too sarcastically. <laughs> But friends, when you're in love with Jesus, it's not a chore. Being with him, talking with him, following his promptings, pleasing him. That's all obedience is, pleasing him because you love him. I don't want to do that if it disappoints you, Father. Oh, I'd love to do that if it would make you happy. Just out of love becomes the motivator. It's freedom in Christ when you're totally sold out. You know, if you find this morning that your Christian life is less than satisfying, it may be because your surrender is less than complete. God is pleased to reveal himself to those who seek him with all of their heart.
God is pleased to use the one who is sold out to him without reservation. And if you find that somehow we're not living that New Testament Christianity, it may be because we're not living that New Testament commitment. If we find that our Christian lives are somehow dissatisfying today, it is not because God has changed or he has failed. We can point squarely to our own selves and ask, Lord, where am I coming up short? Now, I want you to think about that this week. I want you to spend some time on it because a couple of things could be true of you. You may never have realized that you needed to make this commitment. You may never have realized that you have a choice to make, that you have been freed and you have been released, but you must consciously give yourself to God. This may be the first time you've heard that. Another thing that could be true is that you knew that and you made that decision of unreserved unqualified commitment somewhere back there but as life has taken its toll on you over time you have taken back little bits and pieces here and there until this morning you find you're holding on to far more of it than you thought you were and somehow or another you have taken back from God a lot of what you had given him. And you need to renew that commitment. You need to sell out again. You need to, to look at what you're holding on to and turn loose. And that can be, that can be challenging. Uh, another thing that kind of happens as we've been following Christ for a while, you know, is that sometimes we get disappointed with God. Life isn't turning out the way we thought. We're not getting what we felt we had bargained for. We somehow feel that he's let us down. And it's hard to love someone with all your heart that you feel has seriously disappointed you. It's hard to come back to that place of trust if you feel you've been betrayed. And if you have those feelings toward God, you may need to take some time with the Holy Spirit to sort them out. I can tell you how it's going to turn out. But that doesn't make it any easier. You need to sort out with God what you're not happy about. So that you can return to your first love. And do the things you did at first. But if our experience of Christ is deficient, then it's somewhere related to our commitment to him that is insufficient. And for whatever reason, we need to come back to a place of absolute surrender. Are you ready for that? Are you open to God and his work in you for absolute surrender? I don't want you to do that emotionally. I don't want you to do that on the spur of the moment here this morning. I want you to think about what that means. 
and then to make that decision. I know there's risk there. Um, I remember clearly the story that Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones told of, I believe he called him the town drunk, the person that everyone knew what kind of life they lived, and it was not a good one. And Somehow or another, he had shown up in a service one Sunday evening when Lloyd-Jones was preaching, and the next day he met him on the sidewalk, and he said to Martin Lloyd-Jones, Pastor, if you had given an invitation last night when you were preaching, I would have responded. And Lloyd-Jones says, called him by name, Sir, if you had been serious with God, you would have responded without an invitation. And I don't want you to make an emotional decision. I want you to make a genuine one that you've thought about. Are you ready to take your hands off and give God total control of your life? To present yourselves to God in absolute surrender, whatever that means. And if you've been at it a while on the journey, as have I, and you find that you're operating in the flesh more often than you would like to think. Maybe you need to sit down with God and ask him to take inventory and see what you've taken back and be willing to take your hands off again. Because God is faithful. And when you give him everything, he will take you up on it. And what he can do with your life when it is totally surrendered will amaze you and everyone around you. Father, I pray this morning that you would open our hearts to receive your word, that you would speak to us very clearly. Lord, some of us have grown weary with well-doing. We're just simply tired. Some of us have allowed the edge to be dulled and we have admitted more and more unsavory things in our lives. Some of us have grown disappointed with you and we've taken back some areas because we don't feel you're trustworthy. And in every case, we're withholding a part of ourself from you. And we're not really happy like that. And so I pray this morning that you would touch us and that you would examine our hearts, search us, O God, and know us. See if there's any wicked or wayward way in us. And lead us in the way everlasting the path of your choosing. Bring us back to that place of absolute surrender. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.